Welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. I'm Brendan Cullen, a partner in Sullivan and Cromwell's litigation group in our Palo Alto office. With me is Tony Lewis, special counsel in our Los Angeles office. Today, we're going to talk about some key considerations in building and sustaining an effective corporate compliance program. First, we'll touch on some of the guidance from U.S. enforcement agencies. Then we'll discuss some of the issues that can arise for companies with a multinational scope of operations. And we'll conclude with a few best practices. Tony, can you start with some background on why a compliance program is important in an enforcement context? Sure. The basic goal of a compliance program is to prevent and detect violations of the company's policies and the law. The importance of preventing violations is clear. Early detection is important, too. It can permit the company to avail itself of the benefits that come from early self-disclosure to authorities. And in the event there is an investigation by an enforcement agency, maintaining an effective compliance program can translate into concrete benefits. It's taken into consideration first when prosecutors determine the form of resolution, meaning whether a company is charged with a crime or reaches some other agreement with the government. Second, when determining the amount of a monetary penalty. And third, it can affect whether a monitor will be imposed on the company. So now let's turn to the DOJ Criminal Division's guidance for how prosecutors evaluate a corporate compliance program. That guidance asks three basic questions. First, is the corporation's compliance program well-designed? Second, is the program being applied earnestly and in good faith? And third, does the compliance program work in practice? The guidance touches on a number of topics that companies are expected to address when answering those overarching questions. My partners, Alex Wilshire and Ashley O'Shea, recorded a podcast this summer touching on the most recent updates to that guidance. Tony, what are some of the key points that have remained focus areas for DOJ? Companies will need to establish a tone at the top, issue policies and procedures designed to ensure compliance, and structure and resource the compliance function so it's empowered to do its job. Employees need to be trained. There need to be incentive and disciplinary measures in place to encourage compliant behavior. And employees and others need to know about the company's confidential reporting channels or whistleblower lines. Third parties need to be vetted, meaning agents, consultants, distributors, or other vendors. This is an area of perennial focus for the DOJ. If your compliance program could do only one thing well, it should be this. M&A is a context where companies can unwittingly inherit substantial compliance risk. Audits should be mapped onto periodic risk assessments, and the results of audits and investigations in turn should inform future risk assessments. Finally, a compliance program needs to evolve and improve and be continually reviewed. The June 2020 update to the guidance emphasizes that companies should use lessons learned to improve their compliance programs. The DOJ Criminal Division's guidance is a touchstone for all multinational companies whose operations have any connection to the United States. But depending on the nature of a company's operations, there may be other guidance to consider. Brendan, what are some sources of other compliance guidance focused on particular subjects? First, another division of the DOJ, the Antitrust Division, issued guidance in July 2019, which is particularly relevant for companies that operate in concentrated markets, markets with a handful of major players. 
The antitrust division guidance asks the same three basic questions as the DOJ criminal division's guidance, but some finer points are specific to the antitrust context. The antitrust division's guidance asks whether companies have risk assessments tailored to antitrust issues and compliance staff with antitrust experience. It asks whether specialized policies and trainings are in place to address areas that present significant antitrust risk, like pricing, participating in industry meetings, bidding activities, and hiring and recruitment. And the guidance looks to controls that are in place to track contacts with competitors or attending trade shows and measures to address relevant electronic communications that might occur. In a clear sign that the DOJ is prioritizing compliance programs, the antitrust division's policy now directs prosecutors to consider a company's compliance program when determining the form of resolution. This is a change from previous policy under which only the first company to report certain anti-competitive conduct would be allowed to escape charges. Moving from antitrust to sanctions, the U.S. Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Asset Control, or OFAC, administers U.S. sanctions. OFAC issued its own compliance framework in May 2019. There are sanctions risks for companies in most any sector, financial services, technology, international trade, to name a few. OFAC's framework calls for five essential components of a compliance program. Management commitment, risk assessment, internal controls, testing and auditing, and training. While it covers a lot of the same ground as the DOJ's guidance, it differs in some respects. OFAC's framework looks to whether compliance staff have experience with OFAC's regulations and whether staff have sufficient knowledge to understand complex financial and commercial activities. And because sanctions compliance often relies on screening a company's transactions, payments, customers, and other counterparties against OFAC's lists of sanctions persons and entities, its framework emphasizes using effective technology and ensuring it continues to operate properly. More than one recent enforcement action occurred because of screening technology lapses. There are also cross-border issues that are particular to the sanctions context. One jurisdiction, say the United States, might impose sanctions on an entity, and another jurisdiction, say the EU, could pass a law that prevents companies from complying with those sanctions. These so-called blocking statutes can present difficult legal questions and often require experienced counsel in both jurisdictions to navigate. A compliance program should have processes in place to detect when these conflicts arise. Sanctions compliance can also present challenges in the cross-border M&A context. Aside from conflicting legal obligations that may exist between the acquirers and the target's jurisdictions, issues can arise where the target is in or close to high-risk sanctions regions and may not be sensitized to sanctions issues in the same way that the acquirer is. While we are talking about cross-border issues, Brendan, what are some other issues that arise for companies with multinational operations? So far, Tony, you and I have discussed just some of the compliance frameworks by some U.S. enforcement authorities. Other non-U.S. authorities' guidance may cover much of the same ground or it may diverge. As just one example, when a company prepares to commence an internal investigation into a compliance issue, it will need to decide how it should approach its employees. The U.S. DOJ generally expects that companies will insist upon cooperation from their employees in things like access to documents or agreeing to be interviewed by investigators. But other countries may have other legal protections in place to protect employees' rights against these very sorts of things. 
Companies also can't just look at purely legal considerations when implementing a compliance program in different locations. Compliance materials need to be translated and, just as importantly, tuned to a local audience, recognizing that cultural factors can play a substantial role. Take, for example, establishing effective confidential reporting structures. Whistleblower procedure is an area where local attitudes can affect both the whistleblower and the behavior of the persons receiving a whistleblower report. There are also different requirements that apply to whistleblowers in different jurisdictions. Marrying this cultural reality to the various legal requirements can be challenging for multinational companies. So, Tony, with all this in mind, what are some best practices that companies can have in mind as they sustain their compliance programs? First, companies should document their compliance programs as well as any changes to their compliance program and the reasons for them. Prosecutors consider whether a program is effective both at the time of the misconduct and at the time a resolution is reached. So proving how effective a compliance program was in the past is important, but can be difficult. Showing why and when a program was improved can be very challenging without a system to record those details. Similarly, keeping a record of the program's successes in preventing misconduct and crediting the judgments of compliance personnel and business decisions also helps demonstrate the company's commitment to compliance. Second, get local input and buy-in. It's often beneficial to give local stakeholders, including local managers and employees, a voice in the crafting of a compliance program for their region. These individuals have knowledge about local operations and culture. And more than that, top-down imposition of rules can create a sense of resentment in branch offices that aren't given ownership over their operations. So involving local stakeholders can increase buy-in to the program. Local counsel are also a good resource for perspective to supplement local managers' views. Finally, keep adapting the program to changing circumstances. As a company's operations grow and the regulatory environment evolves, it should review its current program to confirm it remains effective or make changes suited to those developments. In summary, an effective compliance program can save a company from serious consequences later on, not least of which could be a compliance monitor to help devise and implement a program that should have been established in the first place. Moreover, given the guidance issued by DOJ and other agencies and statements by DOJ that it has prioritized training and hiring prosecutors to enhance DOJ's ability to evaluate corporate compliance programs, companies can expect more sophisticated scrutiny measured against that guidance. Thank you very much for listening to SNC Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.solcrom.com. Mm-hmm.